banded together from remote galaxies are 13 of the most sinister villains of all time, the Legion of Doom. Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. Only one group dares to challenge this intergalactic threat, the Super Friends. Justice League of America versus the Legion of Doom. This is the Challenge of the Super Friends. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 109 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and in this episode, I'm going to continue my coverage of the 1978 season of Super Friends. This will be the season entitled Challenge of the Super Friends. I'm going to be covering the new Super Friends episodes, The Pied Piper from Space and Attack of the Vampire, and the challenge of the Super Friends episodes, Trial of the Super Friends and the Monoliths of Evil. You know, I'm just continuing my run through these, through this one season that, really the only season of Super Friends that focuses on the mainstream DC villains. I mean, there'll be some, we'll see some fourth world stuff later, but this is the first, this is the only season of the Justice League in which the well-known DC Comics villains are used, and you'll we'll see them sporadically later on, but not much else going forward. So, before we get into uh, this week's episodes, I want to address some feedback. I have two letters this week, so we should get right into them. The first is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in regarding Man of Screen, episode number 98, in which I talked about, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman. The TV adaptation that aired 1975 on ABC, not the uh, Broadway performance with... Bob Holiday, Dave writes, Greetings, Mike. Well, I have to say, I have a somewhat more positive view of the TV production of It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman than you did. When this aired originally, I was 19, and this was the first contemporaneous live-action Superman I'd ever seen. By this time, of course, I'd seen the George Reeves TV series, but even when I first saw those episodes, the show was in reruns, and George Reeves had passed on. Here we had a then, quote-unquote, present-day version of The Man of Steel, which was quite a rarity. Nowadays, we have an embarrassment of riches with several living actors who have played, or are currently playing, Superman, on the big screen and the small screen, and all of those available DVD, Blu-ray, digital, and, and YouTube. Now, I'm not going to say that the 1975 TV musical is up to the standards of most of what is available to us today, but in those days, beggars could definitely not be choosers. It probably doesn't help your view of this production that you seem not to be a fan of musicals on TV or in movies, and this is not one of the best musicals to begin with. Although I did like some of the musical numbers, particularly You've Got Possibilities. I think, too, that it suffered a bit by not having a clear sense of itself. There was certainly a strong element of camp, since the original show debuted in the era of the Adam West Batman TV series, well known for its camp. Also, this TV production in 1975 aired only about six months after President Nixon resigned after the Watergate scandal, so there was more cynicism in the air. Believe me, despite there being only nine years between the original Broadway production and this TV production, the culture had certainly changed quite a bit. This was a time people might have wanted this Superman, but were sheepish about admitting it out loud. Again, I'm not saying this was a great or even good version of Superman, but it wasn't Super Pup by any means. I think your plans going forward with shorter breaks and man of screen at the movies sound like a good one. I hope it allows you to keep a schedule you like while still getting some downtime for yourself and your family. As a son of Philadelphia, I am looking forward to your take on Rocky. 
Live long and prosper. Dave. All right, so I'm just going to go uh, a little bit into Dave's letter. And, uh, yeah, you know, it is kind of hard to uh, imagine that <laughs> there was a time when this version of Superman was contemporaneous for somebody in live action. So I can imagine seeing a live action TV Superman on the screen in your lifetime is probably a pretty big deal. I mean, I was lucky enough that I did get to see Christ- a Christopher Reeve Superman film in the in the movies. Maybe I maybe it was Superman 3, but I definitely have more memory of uh, seeing Superman 4 in the theaters. You know, that was really the first Superman movie I remember going to see. And it's one of those cases, and I'll talk about this later when I get to Superman 4, where my memories of seeing the movie are far better than the movie itself. I probably project some of those feelings onto the movie, and which in my mind probably makes it a little bit better than it is. But that's uh, something to contemplate much later down the road. And uh, Dave is calling what we have now an embarrassment of riches when we have several living actors who have played and are and, or are currently playing Superman on the big screen and the small screen. And there are seven actors who played a live-action Superman, four of which are still with us. Obviously, Kirk Allen and George Reeves are long gone. Christopher Reeve died about 13, 14 years ago, I want to say. So even he's long gone as well. But that's the first three. We still have uh, eight if you count Tom Welling, which he always slips to mind because he never actually played Superman in my eyes, but that's not something I'm going to get into here. So, so well, let's include Welling. Let's say eight, five of them are still around. You know, obviously Dean Kane is well into middle age. Ralph had one film. It's hard to say that Cavill and Hecklin are current, are the current Superman. Cavill being in the movies and Hecklin being on TV because we don't know if Cavill or Hecklin are ever going to play Superman again. I'd like to see Cavill get a shot to play a more quote-unquote classic Superman in a future film, but that's not been confirmed at this time, and who knows if Hecklin will ever appear as Superman on, on Supergirl again. I wouldn't object if he did, but there are definitely no plans in the uh, foreseeable future, as far as I know. And Dave said that that was a time when beggars could not be choosers. I guess in the sense that if it's there, you're going to watch it because there was so little opportunity to see a live-action Superman, but just because there isn't much of it doesn't mean you have to accept crap. And, you know, Dave did mention that what I said about not being a fan of musicals on TV or in the movies, you know, it just seems as though something is lost in the translation to TV and the movies. I talked about this in episode 98. There's kind of a magic in the theater that doesn't translate across the screen. So, And maybe this wasn't, isn't that great of a musical to begin with, you know. I never saw it live, so I don't know. Definitely some of the musical numbers were good. You've Got Possibilities is one of them. There was the uh, the one that the mob, all the mob guys did. That was made for the TV version, and I thought that was pretty good, but the story was kind of ridiculous, and I'm not necessarily sure it would have translated any better on the stage, but eh, you never know. Dave says this wasn't as bad as Super Pup. Hard to say. I don't necessarily know that it is or isn't. I know that I'm probably never going to willingly watch either of them ever again, but I will say this for Super Pup. It only tortured me for 25 minutes, where this tortured me for almost 90, so... Super Pup does definitely have that going for it. And, uh, you know, and Dave commented on my plan about going ahead to shorter breaks. And, you know, the man that screened at the movies is just kind of a thing to help keep me fresh when I get uh, a little bored with uh, Super Friends. I'll be honest, you know, I'm enjoying watch- watching these Super Friends episodes, but I will say this. Just sometimes getting through it is a bit of a slog, and it's nice to have a, a break sometime. So, there is no... The next planned break is right before Superman the Movie Month as... I'm planning to dedicate a whole month to Superman the movie. At the moment, it's looking like October, but that'll be more nailed down once I have all the episodes recorded. So, as of this time, I'm recording this episode on August 4th. Three 
of the planned five episodes have been recorded. There's going to be at least four, maybe a fifth, but we'll see as of this time. So I'll get to, uh, and I'll get to Dave's comments on uh, my take on Rocky uh, when I get to the next Man of Screen at the Movies. So I've got one more letter here. This one is from Jack Bone. Jack is writing in on Super Friends Year One. Jack writes, I don't know if you're interested in what parts of the show stick in the mind 40 years on. In any event, I decided to send them all together, or procrastination decided for me. I wrote to you before your coverage that I only remembered the balloon people and the shame on you. Occasionally, on your show, you'd describe comic relief from Marvin and Wonder Dog or a Silver Rage hook like a Florida pool freezing over in the summer. That sounds familiar, but I can't swear that isn't something from another cartoon before, during, or after Super Friends. Then there are the memories revived by your show. The origin of Superman should have stuck with me more because of the unusual way it was told by one character to another, rather than narrated to us. When you mentioned King Plasto and the Fantastic Furps, I knew there was a word game about the Roy or Royal, though I didn't remember how it led to him because I didn't follow it at the time. That may be why the solution was found accidentally. I might have been devastated if Marvin, Marvin, got it and I hadn't. It was when you mentioned the cave-dwelling fish with the long arms and the mysterious moles that you could have knocked me over. I remember that little guy. I love that little guy. Aquaman should have adopted him as a sidekick, or as a second best. I imagined him crossing over to any cartoon or story I saw. This infatuation lasted at least until the next January. If the TV schedules I can find online are accurate, and by the way, if you feel concerned over polluting and using up our natural resources gets brought up a bit too often in these episodes, be glad you weren't watching an episode of Yogi's Gang before each episode of Super Friends. The animated Star Trek, which has shown its get small episode before Gulliver's Gigantic Goof, aired and in an Alien Zoo episode in January, and all those inspirations spilled out of my brain onto a large sheet of paper where I drew tables and shelves full of miniaturized heroes in jars, bottles, cages, and what all. In an aquarium up in the left-hand corner was this fella, ready to lend a hand or a tentacle. For a few seasons down the line, I found the DVD of the legendary Superpower show for cheap. At the risk of becoming another Dave McElvenny, I'll be able to post well-informed comment on each episode. At some point between all new Super Friends and legendary Superpowers, I aged out of watching the show faithfully. So, I'll be for the first time as an adult, what you remember as a kid, a reversal of the current situation. Jack. Well, so definitely thank you, Jack, for writing in, and and I'm going to send this out message out not only to Jack, but to anyone who is listening and watched this show at the time it was on and have memories of the of this show. Especially now that I'm getting into the challenge of the Super Friends, as everybody seems to look back most fondly on this. Write in. I want to hear your memories of this show. I don't have any real memories of a lot of these episodes that I'm covering right now. So it's kind of different. You know, almost ever since I finished the George Reeves show, I don't have a lot of memory of the stuff that I'm covering. So everything from the filmation, probably up, excluding the Christopher Reeve movies, of course, probably up even through the Ruby Spears stuff, I don't have any concrete memories of. And that probably brings us right through the third season of Superboy. That's when I started watching the show religiously. I mean, I know I watched the Ruby Spears cartoons, but I don't really have any memory of the episodes. I have one memory of a, of a short where Superman was playing baseball with some kids, but that was it. But yes, I want to hear your memories of this show. So send them in. And I'm willing to read them on the show if uh, you would like me to. And uh, definitely, uh, Jack, never be afraid of becoming another Dave McElvenny. I'll take another two or three Dave McElvennys if I can find them. So please, everybody, send in manascreen at gmail.com. With that being said, I'm going to take a quick break, uh, play a podcast promo, and then I'm going to come back with the new Super Friends episode, the Pied Piper from Space, and the Challenge of the Super Friends episode, 
Trial of the Super Friends. Hang around, folks. What? Have you ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey, everyone. My name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book-filled path 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017, and because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith, where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytube.com. All right, welcome back, folks. All of the episodes in this segment had an original broadcast date of October 7th, 1978, and we're going to start with the new Super Friends episode, The Pied Piper from Space. And both of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. A fleet of UFOs land on Earth and play music attracting children. Zan, Jaina, where are you two going? We must go to Monument Valley. It is imperative... Do not try to stop us. But you're supposed to be monitoring the Hall of Justice today. It is imperative. Do not try to stop us. Something must have happened to them. I've never seen them act this way. It's the Justice League trouble alert. Super friends, the United Nations has been receiving emergency messages from around the world. A group of UFOs are controlling children of every country. They're making them leave their homes, and nothing we do can stop them. They seem to all be headed for a remote area of Arizona. Holy coincidences, Batman. That's where the Wonder Twins want to go. I think we'd better take a trip to Monument Valley and find out what's going on. I'll stay here with the Wonder Twins and keep an eye on the trouble alert. Right. Let's go. When the heroes investigate, they each are trapped. Superman and Wonder Woman are trapped on a UFO sent off to collide with an antimatter universe counterpart. Batman and Robin in the Batjet are caught flying uncontrolled, and Aquaman is trapped in the Hall of Justice where the systems will soon overload. Wonder Twins are taken to another planet, with Earth's children to work in a slave city. Welcome to the planet Nothan, where I am the supreme ruler, and you shall obey my orders, and work in the slave city for the rest of your lives. Your work will now commence. The heroes escape and track the UFOs using a military tracking center. I think I can help you, Super Friends. We've picked up those UFOs on our extraterrestrial tracking system. We've got to find out their exact course through the galaxy. Our tracking scanner should have recorded it, Wonder Woman. I'll play it back on the monitor. They're heading into Sector 9. On a direct course for Planet Nofen. Let's go. 
they find the villain is an alien child genius. Now that the children of Earth have been returned, I'm sure millions of parents can rest easier. And I think we can rest easier knowing that that young space genius has been returned to the authorities on his own planet. Oh, he was just a kid. Nothing for us superheroes to worry about. Look, it's him! <laughs> it's him, all right, Super Sam. The incredible hulking Blake. Okay, so this is, uh, you know, one of those episodes uh, where the villain, uh, the big bad villain who we're supposed to be very scared of, kind of winds up being a little uh, child. Kind of reminds me uh, a little bit of the uh, original Star Trek episode, the Corbomite Maneuver, where uh, Captain Kirk is outfoxing this opponent, and uh, we find out that he's uh, basically a child who's just kind of looking for a good time because he's bored. Kind of something similar here. So we start off with uh, quite a few UFOs approaching the Earth, and of course they have an unknown purpose. I do like the design of this UFO. It's not the common flying saucer design, but... Multicolored lights uh, make up the saucer. Looks like the lights are shining in this kid's bedroom, and it appears to hypnotize the children, as the pupils in their eyes go dead and they shine, based on the color of the light that's hitting their eyes. And it seems to only be affecting the children. The narrator indicates that the music is hypnotizing the kids, but I really haven't heard a lick of music in this show's soundtrack. So, of course, the aliens take the kids to the Arizona desert, because where else do aliens land except for the... uh, Arizona or Midwestern Desert. And while this is going on, Gleek is screwing around with the TV that apparently Batman hasn't finished fixing. When the saucer hovers over the Hall of Justice, and apparently it's powerful enough to overtake Zan and Jaina as well. While the super friends argue with them, they don't immediately notice that they're talking very monotonously and robotically. Zan and Jaina are. And here comes the phone call. Again, the guy who makes the expositional phone call to inform the super friends of the upcoming trouble is extremely calm. Now, it's amazing that all these children seem to get to Arizona with no one saying a word about it. Apparently, there have been no reports of missing children. So the UFOs land, and the Super Friends walk in and out, finding no one on the ships, and then the ships start glowing, and the kids are going into the saucers. The Super Friends try to block the entrances, but a shadowy figure makes some trouble for the Super Friends. So, the UFOs are going to destroy the Super Friends' cities, you know, as a diversion, so they can get them out of there. One causes a flood, and this isn't a bad action sequence with the Superman has to save two trucks, and basically pick them up and move them. Right here, the show is getting a little bit of a uh, narration heavy, as the Super Friends are explaining to the viewers, you know, who are most of these children, what they're doing before they do it. You know, Superman will say that he has to create a water geyser before he does it, and then Wonder Woman, you know, announces the sonic boom she's about to create. We can see the water geyser and hear the sonic boom as they happen, but, you know, I guess the kids watching the show may not necessarily know what a geyser is, so I do guess from the narration they learn what these things are. They'll learn how to like, what a geyser looks like and uh, what a sonic boom is presumed to sound like. So after that's done, Superman and Wonder Woman get stuck on one of the flying saucers and apparently our shadowy figure has plans for everything. He said the ship is made of a Kryptonian alloy and Superman just seems to be uh, throwing a complete temper tantrum trying to bang on this ship uh, to get out. You know, he's not throwing a temper tantrum but it kind of looks like that the way he uh, kind of takes uh, both fists and bangs on the wall like a child screaming for ice cream. Now, Batman and Robin are being completely ineffective as the children are boarding the saucers and are going with Superman and Wonder Woman to somewhere. I presume that it was the antimatter universe that our villain was sending Superman and Wonder Woman to, but he is just kind of sending the kids to wherever it is he is. He uh, mentioned the planet that he lives on, but I couldn't really be bothered to remember it. So Batman and Robin are hypnotized on the Batplane, while Aquaman is the Wonder Twins in some kind of stasis, so 
He's not much of a help in this episode. And apparently somehow the hypnotized kids can cloud the minds of the adults so that nothing interferes with their program. So Gleek decides he's going to go to Arizona and he sure gets there quickly. And as the flying saucer is taking Superman and Wonder Woman away, like I mentioned before, the temper tantrum. Superman has nothing better to do than punch to steal. And this is where we learn that they're heading to an antimatter universe and their flying saucer has a duplicate. And this is kind of a neat effect. On the left-hand side, you see... You know, kind of the flying saucer as it is. You know, it's made to look like a silver chrome with the lights circling on it. But on the right is kind of a shadowy reflection. And as they get closer and closer, kind of toward a collision, I'm guessing uh, Superman somehow knows the flying saucer that he and Wonder Woman are on is going to get weaker and weaker, at least, as far as the hull goes. So, apparently when matter and antimatter collide, it causes an explosion which is also uh, mentioned in Star Trek The Motion Picture, which came out the following year. So I guess this is something that's known at the time. So the uh, collision causes an explosion, and it weakens the saucer enough for Superman and Wonder Woman to escape. So that's kind of the first of uh, our villain's traps, whose name I couldn't bother to remember. Kind of fails. He's thinking he's going to destroy Superman and Wonder Woman in the explosion, but the explosion gives them an opportunity to escape. So when the hole in the hole shows up, Superman scoops Wonder Woman up, and they fly away. And uh, the Bat-Jet... Save Batman and Robin, good for them. And meanwhile, a stone-stiff Aquaman is about to explode along with the Hall of Justice, but Batman turns off the uh, self-destruct at the last minute. And Batman wakes up Aquaman the same way you would wake anybody else up out of a deep hypnosis, by violently shaking them. You know, kind of what you want to do to the kids sometimes to get them up to school in the morning. Just shake them until they're ready to go. If only it were that easy. So the Super Friends go to an Air Force tracking station, which apparently can track these UFOs to winter stellar space. We can't do that now, but I'm supposed to believe this is something that can be done in 1978. I guess, on this Earth, this can be done in 1978. Can't be done even now on our Earth, but it can be done there 40 years ago. So here is our shadowy figure, the Supreme Ruler, I'm going to call him. Welcome to the planet Nopin, where I am the Supreme Ruler, and you shall obey my orders, and work in the slave city for the rest of your lives. The uh, children are going to be his slaves, I guess. The episode still has not revealed anything about this guy. That's going to just deepen the mystery. You know, you're going to anticipate who this villain is. You think he's going to be some kind of physical threat because he's this hulking shadow on a TV screen. But boy, are we going to be in for a shock when we finally do see him. So Gleek shows up in this world and tries to get through to Zan and Jaina, but he has no luck. And Gleek will do something smart for a change and... He puts Zan and Jaina's hands together to activate their Wonder Twin powers to break the trance. And it works. Jaina becomes a gorilla, and Zan an ice crowbar. And she uses him to pry the door open. Now, I have a question. Does Zan feel pain in this form? Because being used to wedge open a door with your body has got to be painful. Yeah, he may be in the form of an ice crowbar, but that's still Zan. I can imagine if somebody picked me up and used me to uh, pry a door open, I'd be in some kind of pain. But, you know, of course, they get caught and can't use their powers, and we're going to get our second flood of the episode. And the Air Force has an extraterrestrial tracking system, which we need on this Earth so we can track the uh, UFO to their home planet. And the Super Friends go to the alien planet. Even Batman's Batjet is up to the flight. Apparently this time he didn't take the Bat rocket ship. He just took the Bat plane. Am I right? Good. Not only is it an aircraft, it's also spacefaring. Of course, while on the alien planet, Aquaman will get attacked by a giant alien squid. Fortunately, he can communicate with alien sea life, and they save him. The Batjet will get attacked by a giant wasp. Hopefully, uh, Batman has his uh, wasp-repellent bat spray handy. 
Unfortunately, he doesn't need it, and he just kind of flies really fast and gets out of the hive. Wonder Woman finds the children, and the super friends are going to need to find whomever is in control. And apparently, uh, the slave kids will also defend their master, and Gleek will take a page out from Wonder Dog's book, and will play charades to tell the super friends that the twins are in trouble. Superman spins down and rescues the twins after dealing with some water. Now, the super friends find the, their enemy's lair, and it turns out to be a scared child trying to intimidate and roll. He's using this, that bulky image and technology to control the kids, and he's a kid himself. He's tiny, you know. He's using that fake, big, hulking, shadowy figure to intimidate and make people think he there's more to him than there actually is. He's overcompensating. So when they get back home, Super Friends talk about how parents can rest easy with their kids safe, but Zan downplays the kind of threat a kid could represent, but Gleek shows him wrong by making himself look way larger with a shadow and a flashlight, but you know what? No matter how old or young your opponent is, you should not take them lightly, especially if they're doing something dangerous. I mean, how many times have we heard of a kid getting killed because, you know, somebody was irresponsible with a gun? I mean, that happened to my own family in Texas many years ago. I mean... I'm not going to go into uh, much more than that, but, you know, these things happen. And, you know, even if a kid is doing, you know, not something this extreme, but something dangerous that can harm others, you know, that doesn't mean, just because he's a kid doesn't mean there are things that he can do that can't be undone. So, any kind of threat has to be taken seriously, no matter who the perpetrator is, even if it is a kid. Let's move on to the challenge of the Super Friends episode, The Trial of the Super Friends. And our synopsis is as follows. Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern have their power devices stolen by Brainiac, Cheetah, and Scarecrow. The first part of our mission has been completed, Luthor. We've got the Super Friends power devices. Excellent, Cheetah. Those super fools have only seen the tip of the iceberg. Jet thrusters, full power! Now, when I say power devices, that's uh, Batman and Robin's... Utility belt, Wonder Woman's lasso, and Green Lantern power ring. Then they are put on trial by the Legion and... Welcome, super friends! Holy teleportation, Batman! Where are we? If my instincts are correct, I'd say we're right in the middle of the Hall of Doom. Order in the court! The trial will now begin. Grodd, swear them in. Swear to tell untruths and nothing but untruths. So help you, Grodd. You call this mockery of justice a trial, Luthor? Yes, Wonder Woman. I call it the trial of the super friends. Shall I secure the prisoners, Your Honor? That won't be necessary. The defendants are quite helpless without their weapons of justice. The prosecution will proceed. I plan to prove, Your Honor that these four criminals who call themselves super friends are in fact the enemies of us all. The charges will now be read. Batman, Robin, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman are hereby charged with the following crimes. Heroic action in the name of justice, upholding the law, and attempting to stop the Legion of Doom. This is absurd, Luthor. We're being charged with crimes that are completely within the law. Your laws, Batman, not ours. The prosecution will continue. I have before me Exhibit A, Green Lantern's power ring, Batman and Robin's utility belts, and 
and Wonder Woman's magic lasso. The jury will please notice that the accused super friends are not wearing their power devices. And that's because they were taken from them in the act of trying to stop three of the most distinguished members of the Legion of Doom. The witnesses will now testify. It's true, Your Honor. We were stopped before we could complete our plans. Your plans were to illegally break into the astrochemical research plant. Silence, or I'll have you in contempt of court. Observe for yourselves the harsh treatment given to Brainiac, Cheetah, and Scarecrow. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, the case is clear. <sighs> we have reached our verdict, Your Honor. <laughs> Read it. We, the jury, find the defendants <laughs> guilty as charged. Holy mistrials! We're innocent! As judge of the Legion of Doom, I sentence the four of you to fight Brainiac's super-powerful super-friends androids. <laughs> the only difference between you and my androids is that they are wearing your power devices. Great Hera, my lasso! The utility belts, my power ring! The super friends will soon get a taste of their own medicine. <laughs> Meanwhile, the other super friends are busy trying to stop the Legion unleashing molten liquid light from a research facility. Now all we have to do is haul them off to prison. Not this time, Green Lantern. <laughs> You'll never catch us! It looks like the Legion of Doom has slipped away again. Yes, but they've slipped up in their plans also. Right, Superman. And maybe someday they'll realize that they'll never win their battle against justice. Or the Super Friends. Okay, so this episode is kind of double-pronged. Where we have, on one hand, we have Batman, Wonder Woman, and Green Lantern who are caught by the Legion and they're on trial and dealing with, with the uh, situation that they're in, and we have the Super Friends kind of dealing with this liquid light, which is uh, about to wreck this town. And this is the first episode that doesn't begin in the Legion of Doom swap. Here we start with the Super Friends protecting uh, what's unknown as this episode starts, but Batman and Robin, Wonder Woman and Green Lantern are protecting the development of the liquid light. And even though this plant is the Metropolis, there is no Superman protecting it. He's at the Hall of Justice. These, and these two scientists have created, you know, the aforementioned liquid light, which could either solve the energy crisis or destroy the planet if it falls into the wrong hands. So, one extreme to the other here. It's either going to be really helpful or very destructive. And whenever in, on TV or in a book or in anything, when someone worries about something falling into the wrong hands, that usually means it's going to fall into the wrong hands. So here are three Legion of Doom members, Brainiac, Cheetah, and Scarecrow. Brainiac has a radar scanner, and still, this Brainiac is at least not a servant his scientific master like the character was in the filmation cartoons even though the design is somewhat similar you know i don't know if this particular brainiac is biological or robotic but it is still weird seeing brainiac hanging out with this crowd um you know when putting this show together hanna barbera didn't necessarily pay any attention to how these villains would function they just kind of shoved the entire roster together so it creates for some strange team-ups like this one so Cheetah breaks into the complex and a whole bunch of Cheetahs show up via hologram and uh, Wonder Woman is caught after falling for a fake Cheetah. 
which directs her high into the air and causes her to lose the lasso. She falls, and fortunately for her, the jet catches her very quickly, and Wonder Woman gets away, but Cheetah gets the lasso. So We're seeing that right off the bat, the Legion is not necessarily after the Super Friends immediately, they're after the devices. One down, the lasso. And it was pretty easy to imagine that while watching this episode that they were after Green Lantern's ring, and Brainiac comes to the plant with a giant tank, and Green Lantern creates one of his own. I like that he can build solid objects with his ring. The show is getting that right, at least, but why aren't the constructs green? I mean, he's making, you know, real-life constructs, but they're being colored as if they actually exist. They're not being colored. They're not being colored green like a Green Lantern construct would be. So Green Lantern loses his ring to Brainiac, and he's powerless. And uh, here are some crows, and apparently that's the uh, Scarecrow's calling card. I don't know much about the Scarecrow of the late 70s, but he doesn't have a crow motif nowadays. I don't know if he did then, either. I mean, mostly Scarecrow is about the fear gas. If any of you uh, are, are familiar with 1970s Scarecrow, uh, drop me a line and let me know if this crow motif is something we saw in the comics or if it's something that was invented for this show. So Batman and Robin are abducted by the crows, which take their utility belts, and without their utility belts, Batman and Robin are pretty much useless. So with their devices stolen, the uh, Hall of Doom comes by and basically abducts the uh, four super friends. Like I said, without their devices, they're pretty useless. And apparently, and this is Robin's first visit to the Hall of Doom, as he asked where he was. And here is Luthor, dressed in a purple robe, and Sinestro is going to serve as a prosecutor. Which is kind of ridiculous. The uh, super friends are being charged with crimes against the Legion of Doom. So, they're putting on this whole uh, kind of kangaroo court to, uh, because they can, for, for really no other reason. And they just noticed as I was watching this court hearing that Green Lantern has a spit curl like Superman does. So, maybe it's the same model, just colored differently. So, surprise, surprise, the super friends are found guilty. And instead of uh, instant sentencing them to death, as you wouldn't do on a children's cartoon, they are sentenced to fighting android doppelgangers. So the rest of the Super Friends realize something is up when the rest of them are gone, and it's a good thing they're checking these things out. And then uh, the Legion is trying to steal the Liquid Light. They're sending Black Manta and Bizarro. I guess Bizarro is the most powerful member of the Legion of Doom, as he has powers that rival Superman's. And Black Manta is there because Aquaman is still out there. So the Liquid Light is... Uh, gets spilled, and it's burning through everything, except for the floor. I guess that's so it can go somewhere. And back at the Legion headquarters, the Super Friends and the Androids are sent to the fighting plane, almost as if it was some kind of a RPG video game, where when you get to the uh, to the fight, you are transported away to the uh, where the fights happen. That's what I call the fighting plane. Yeah, but at least the uh, Legion of Doom is making their sentence sporting, you know, gives the Super Friends a chance to uh, succeed. Wonder Woman is a jungle, Batman and Robin are in a swamp, and Green Lantern is in a desert canyon. Meanwhile, back in Metropolis, the Liquid Light is about to hit two kids, but Black Vulcan saves them, while Superman uses a dam to uh, stop the flow of the Liquid Light. You know, Superman has a nice uh, moment of uh, what he thinks is success, and as the uh, Super Friends theme plays in its full glory, the Liquid Light breaks right through. And I'm finding as I go through this, I really enjoy when I hear the main Super Friends theme play during an episode. It's can be uplifting, even if it's sometimes played at the wrong times. I also find it amusing that the uh, liquid light doesn't take buildings down, it just kind of goes through the streets and goes down each respective street, paying no mind to the buildings. So meanwhile, Wonder Woman tells the viewers what her plan is. She's roped by the android, and Wonder Woman seems to be distracting the android with ants, and that allows her to turn the tables on it. Batman and Robin are webbed up and are in danger of hitting alligators. Instead, they use the bat invisibility ray to make the androids think they were invisible, and, it, and they basically just run into them, and that frees them. Apparently, Green Lantern's doppelganger is unaware of the ring's yellow impurity, so he uses it to uh, use the ring against the android. You know, that's something Sinestro should know. You would think they'd have planned the 
android with the knowledge that yellow can't effectively an empty ring. So the Legion of Doom is demanding control over the world's oil, or they're going to release all the, all the liquid light. And Batman has a plan. And Superman takes care of the liquid light, while the Flash will bend the light with his speed and kind of sending it flying away. And Batman and Robin will freeze Grodd. And, of course, at the end, Luthor and the Legion escape, but the music tells us the Super Friends have won, and, as usual, there is the ending saying that they'll get them someday. So I like this episode. Well-paced. There was a nice, uh, you know, parallel story that comes together at some point. There was never any doubt that the Super Friends were going to win their respective battles, but I enjoyed the action. The concept of doppelgangers can get pretty old, but there was a nice balance. They're setting up the conflict and the resolution. I didn't feel as though this episode had to rush the ending like other episodes have. Nice pacing. It's a real fun episode. And with that being done, I'm going to take a quick break, play a podcast promo. Then I'm going to come back with the new Super Friends episode, Attack of the Vampire, and the challenge of the Super Friends episode, Monolith of Evil. Hang around, folks. Working together, we saved the planet. And I believe that if we stayed together as a team, we would be a force that could truly work for the ideals of peace and justice. Every episode. My name is Jean. I'm a Martian. Every adventure. (sighs) Okay. You guys are so slow. Every hero. Whatever you think you're doing, if you present a threat to the world, the Justice League will take you down. Cindy and Chris Franklin bring you JLU Cast. Whatever the future holds, we'll make those choices ourselves. Don't say you don't love me. I'll never say that. Covering the complete animated run of Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. And the adventure continues. There's strength in numbers. What? Like a bunch of super friends? More like a Justice League. Alright, welcome back folks. All of the episodes in this segment have original broadcast date of October 14th, 1978. And we're going to start with the new Super Friends episode, Attack of the Vampire. And both of our synopses are brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. In Transylvania, Count Dracula awakens after 100 years to make the people of the world into vampires. When the dynamic duo investigate the disappearance of the crew and passengers from a jetliner... Batman, Robin, thank you for coming. Have you found out anything else about the disappearance? No, Batman. All we know is that the jet took off with a full load of passengers and it landed on autopilot without a soul on board. There's got to be a clue to this mystery somewhere. Holy vanishing vacationers, Batman. Where could they have gone? I don't know, Robin. But perhaps this strange glowing dust has something to do with it. We'd better take a look in the control tower and rerun the radar screen tapes. This way, Batman. According to the radar, the jet was only out of sight for a few seconds when it passed through some heavy clouds. Those are the clouds, Batman, around those high peaks. It's our only lead, and a slim one at that. Come on, Robin, we'd better check it out. They don't know that those missing people have been turned into vampires by Dracula. (sighs) Welcome to the castle of Count Dracula. You are all under my control, and you will help me transform the entire world into vampires. <sighs> Soon, Earth will be a planet of the living dead. Going to Dracula's castle, they are trapped in a deep well, filling quickly with water. When the others learn of the growing vampire situation, Superman goes to Vienna, where he confronts Dracula but gets changed into a vampire. While Aquaman and Wonder Woman go to the, a Scandinavian seaport where they barely escape from hundreds of vampires. 
The Wonder Twins try to help Superman, but they are chained to the vampires themselves. Regrouping at the uh, Swiss Biological Research Center. According to the calculations, Batman, there is only one possible antidote that might reverse the effects of these vampires. This strange bleed of South American bat lives in a deep cave in the Andes Mountains. It is the only known species with an immunity to the vampire bat. But what can we do to reverse the effects they have on people? It is possible that the gases in the bat's deep cave have something to do with its immunity. Then if we can spray it on Dracula's victims, we may be able to return them to normal. It is only a theory, Aquaman. It may not work. Theory or not, it's our only chance. We'll have to leave for South America immediately. Aquaman and I will try to slow down Superman and the others until you get back. Batman and Robin get the substance and join Wonder Woman and Aquaman in Vienna. They cure the twins first, and then Superman. Superman uses his heat vision to change his suit into the rags they were earlier. Apparently some makeup to look like a vampire again, and he penetrates Dracula's castle and defeats him. The others cure the victims, and all's well that ends well. Later, at the Hall of Justice. Well, now that that evil Dracula has been taken care of, I suppose we can rest easy for a while. Don't tell me you're afraid of that, Sam. No way, Batman. It's... it's Dracula! <laughs> Wrong, Sam. It's Dracula. I really like this episode, which is weird. I don't. I'm not the biggest uh, vampire fiend out there. I mean, probably the biggest vampire fan that I know is my buddy uh, Tom Benya, who I am hoping will be able to join us during Superman the Movie Month. I have to uh, bring that back up to him so we can uh, get that going before we start working 24 hours a day again. But, you know, I really enjoyed watching this episode, seeing the Super Friends kind of go through their progressions and split up and, uh, you know, solve the mystery. So, let's get into it, shall we? The Transylvanian Alps. Well, that means uh, Transylvania is in Europe, in the Alps Mountains. And there's a uh, decayed-looking Dracula right there, and he's been sleeping for a hundred years. I'll bet he's still tired. I'll bet I could sleep for a hundred years and still be tired when I woke up. And the uh, synopsis indicate that Batman is going to be heavily involved in this episode, and that's good. Batman fits very well with this kind of character. Dust will pass through this airplane and it turns this plane full of people into vampires. And everyone on the plane turns into vampire bats and just kind of flies out. And As I watched this episode, I imagined this would lead to the plane crashing, but it does not. We'll get to that in a minute. At the Hall of Justice, we learn that apparently if the Wonder Twins try to activate their powers and Gleek gets in the way and they each punch him in the side of the head, he will transform into some kind of weird combination of their two power sets. Some kind of weird animal water thing. Okay, good to know. Which brings up another question that I've been having about Zan and Jaina's powers. The ability to... And I'm amazed, I, I'm thinking of this for the first time now. Zan and Jaina both wear gloves. And when they pump their fists together to activate their Wonder Twin powers, they don't actually come into physical contact because skin doesn't touch skin. The gloves touch the gloves, but I guess that's going to be enough. So there's that. I really have no ending to that, so I'll just move on to the next note. Now, the uh, expositional phone call will report that a plane has landed with no passenger or crew members. How does that happen? How does this plane not crash? Planes can't land themselves. Now, I don't know much about air travel other than how to get on the plane and sit there until you get where you're going. That's the limit of my air travel knowledge. I know to get on the plane when I'm at the airport. I know to get off the plane when I'm told to do so. I know a little bit. Of, I know very little about what happens in the cockpit. I do believe there is some kind of autopilot that happens that can happen or can be activated now while the plane is cruising. I could be wrong. I don't know for sure, but I do know that the plane has to be landed manually. 
So how does this plane not crash? And I know what you're saying, or what you're thinking, rather. How can I accept vampires and superpowers and not accept the plane landing on its own? Okay, but the world has to have rules. I know this is a kid's cartoon, but... And these things don't aren't thought of, or nor do they apply. Because maybe kids think of these things, I don't know. I did. But to me, the world has to have rules so I can buy into it. It's a real world aside from the extraordinary people with superpowers. Things still have to work the way they should. A plane with no, no one on it should crash unless it is caught by Superman or something. And it wasn't. It can't land itself. Unless, of course, magic. <sighs> anyway, Dracula welcomes the crew and passengers from the plane to his castle. He talks in this wheezing voice and he's going to uh, turn the planet into a living death. Which is kind of dark for a kid's cartoon, but we're going there apparently. And now the vampires go out into this village. I believe this is Vienna. And this guy at a store window kind of turns around, sees the vampires, and goes, Oh, look, a vampire! As if this is something he regularly sees. As if it's normal. You know, everybody says, Oh, look, how cool is it to live in a world with superheroes and all that. You know what? It's things like this that doesn't make me want to live in a world with superheroes. I don't know if I want to live in a world where vampires are normal. Or in a world where if I see a vampire, I'm just going to say, Oh, look, a vampire! Instead of having an involuntary bowel move. And so the uh, villagers turn into uh, walking zombies because... What else do zombies do other than walk? And uh, now that we're back to the plane, I'm guessing autopilot is a thing and planes can land on their own in this world, so I'm just going to have to live with that. That's one of the one of the rules of this world is that there are no rules. It's a Silver Age story, and uh, the rules of the world are whatever the plot needs the rules of the world to be. And so Batman finds some dust residue, which we remember from the dust that passed through the plane and turned everybody into vampires. Or, so there's some kind of connection between the cloud... And the dust residue is suspected of coming from these high peaks. Not sure how they know that, but okay, we need to move the plot along. And Batman recognizes it as the castle of Count Dracula. Because of course he does. You would expect Batman to be up on all of this material. And I'm guessing the character of Dracula is in the public domain because everybody and their brother uses it. There was the Universal Monster movies of the 30s. Blade Trinity used Dracula, even if they called him Drake. So, I'm guessing uh, Count Dracula is one of those characters that can be used in the public domain. His image is all over, like, Count Chocula cereal, even though he uses a different name. He is definitely a take on Dracula. So, you know, for those of you who don't know, and I'm sure you do, but I'm going to say it anyway, Dracula is kind of the vampire of vampires. And this particular Dracula must have done a lot of smoking in his life, because he sounds awful wheezy. Oh, uh, Batman and Robin are attacked by vampires, and this is kind of shaping up to be a pretty good Batman story so far. You know, at least it was until they got lowered into this well to drown. So, meanwhile, uh, vampire bats are converting people into vampires, and the super friends get a trouble alert about the bat attack. Wonder Woman and Octoman go to investigate, leaving Superman home to polish his boots or something. Why they leave him home, I don't know. I mean, yes, he's vulnerable to magic, but to bench the, sh- the League's most powerful member makes no sense. And the show is making no effort to take Superman out. You know, we'll... Uh, in the event that I continue the podcast through the Justice League and Justice League Unlimited episodes, and you can even hear uh, Chris Franklin and his wife Cindy talk about this on the JLU cast over on the Fire and Water Network, they have the uh, not-so-Superman or not-quite-Superman uh, moment. They call it one of those two things. Where Bruce Tim and company really fell into the hole of you know having Superman taken out so the other leaguers uh, had a chance to shine. This show made no such effort. They just left Superman all. So, while he's waiting, Superman gets a call to Vienna, and it's not for sausage, as his general is converted to a vampire as well. You know, right on the view screen, so 
Of course, uh, the first thing Superman does when he gets to Vienna is put his hands on his hip and pose, you know, as only Superman does. So Superman needs a way to stop the vampires without harming the people. Apparently, Dracula shows up and takes an interest in Superman. And suddenly, Superman is all vamped up, and with a shot of Dracula's heat vision, all color is drained from his costume. It looks like he's uh, in the black and white costume, which was worn by uh, the Kirk Allen and George Reeves incarnation of Superman in live action. Now, Superman is doing a good job of turning people into vampires, and now the Wonder Twins are the uh, last line of defense. God help the world. And Zan decides to provide the transportation in the form of an ice rocker, powered by steam. Yeah, you heard me right. Jaina is sitting in an ice rocket, powered by steam. I sure hope Zan doesn't melt himself. Just saying. Okay, so then when they're in uh, Vienna, Jaina becomes a woolly mammoth, and then Zan changes to ice water, and Jaina drinks him, kind of sucking him up through, the, through her trunk. Am I the only one who finds that a little weird? So she freezes the vampires, but defrauds Superman, and that's not good, as Superman vamps them up as well. So I guess that's a well-thought-out plan. Uh, maybe it's not so well-thought-out. Well, whether it's well-thought-out or not, it's gone to crap. So it's about this time when I'm wondering, how are Batman and Robin doing? Have they drowned yet? The answer is a resounding no. And, you know, Robin is just about ready to drown. You know, Batman is a little bit taller, so his head is not going to go underwater quite yet. Robin's is. And now, does Batman think of the emergency bat finger file? Why didn't he think of the emergency bat finger file before Robin started to drown? I guess you only think of the uh, emergency bat finger file before. I guess you wait until it's an actual emergency before you reach for the emergency bat finger file. When wasn't this an emergency? Maybe the bat finger file should have been deployed right away. After he uh, files his way out, he pulls Robin out of the water and they leave in the bat jet to try to call the Hall of Justice, but nobody's home. Wonder Woman and Aquaman are pinned down and he uh, sticks a blue whale onto vampires and hopefully they turn that into a vampire. That'll really screw up the uh, the ocean uh, ecology. So now we get a third expositional phone call reporting the con- conversion of Superman and the twins. And uh, of course the Swiss have somebody working on this because... I guess being in the shadow of Dracula's castle, you better have uh, your vampire reversal antidote on you at all times. But they don't. So, uh, of course, the uh, possible solution is on the opposite side of the planet, as they need a bat from the Andes Mountains in the in South America to uh, provide the uh, antidote. For those of you unfamiliar with the Andes Mountains, it is the longest continental mountain range in the world. It is about 4,300 miles long and extends through... Seven South American countries from uh, north to south. They would be Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, Bolivia, Chile, and Argentina. So that's all, pretty much all you need to know for this episode about the Andes Mountains. If you know where Switzerland is, now you know where the Andes Mountains are. It's quite a distance. I'd uh, love to know how fast the Batjet goes because they get to South America very quickly. I guess it moves at the speed of plot. So a little bit of that gas does go a long way as a tiny bit changes everybody back to humans. And Superman is saved, and now he's going after Dracula. Which, I'll be honest, I didn't see that coming. I figured Batman would be. So Superman dulls his costume and disguises himself as a vampire to infiltrate Dracula's castle. And he's inoculated by the gas, too, so that helps. And kind of once he gets there, Superman kind of makes uh, quick work of Dracula. Kind of almost uh, too quickly. So, it's another one of those episodes that seemed to run out of time and needed to uh, resolve the plot quickly. I don't know if the Hanna-Barbera writers really knew about Superman's vulnerability to magic, but... Superman, you know, just kind of picks up Dracula and throws him back in his coffin and he's done. Good episode. I enjoyed that. That was kind of scary for a kid's cartoon, but I think it balanced the horror element and the superhero action well enough. I don't recall if I saw this as a kid, so I don't know what my reaction was, but if anyone knows how they reacted as a kid to this episode, let me know. Man screen at gmail.com. 
And with that, we're going to move on to the Challenge of the Super Friends episode, Monolith of Evil. And our synopsis is as follows. Solomon Grundy tells the Legion about a power source of evil. That's absurd! You'll never convince me that there is one single source of all evil power! Solomon Grundy say there is! If you don't believe me, maybe Grundy demonstrated on you! Go on, Grundy. Tell us more of this evil power source. Solomon Grundy do better than tell you. Me show you. Grundy, lie lifeless in swamp. Come back to life when strange energy come up through ground. But how would we know where to look for this incredible power source? Solomon Grundy, no legend of evil energy. It come from ancient monolith buried near Sutter of Earth. If Grundy's right, then the evil monolithic energy source that helped spawn him will give the Legion of Doom all the power we've ever dreamed of. We'll have the resources to conquer the universe and destroy the Super Friends. Solomon Grundy knows way to evil energy. We go now! He leads them to a molten cavern in the Earth, but the monolith is guarded by a lava monster. That evil monolith is protected by that incredible molten monster. We'll never get it now. Don't give up so easily, Grodd. But how can we possibly get past that walking inferno? We can't, but the super friends can. And with the help of a few super riddles, we should have that evil energy source very soon. <laughs> Superman, Hawkman, and Black Vulcan are tricked by a holographic mirage to go and retrieve the monolith. And an excellent job if I do say so myself. Thanks for your help, Super Friends. What help, Riddler? We've rescued the UN and you won't get it back again. That's what you think, stupid man. Look again. But the United Nations, where is it? never took the UN. It was only a holographic mirage. We tricked you to get evil power source for us! Believing it is the UN building shrunken, having been shrunken, the Legion takes the monolith while trapping the heroes. While the Legion spreads discord, Green Lantern, Flash, and Apache Chief rescue the trapped heroes, and the Super Friends take back the power source from the Legion. But that'll teach you to leave your toys lying around. I don't understand. How could the Super Friends control the forces of evil? It wasn't an evil power source, Rod. But like anything else, becomes good or bad depending upon how it's put to use. The only evil was in your minds. Thanks for the information, Superman. In that case, it shouldn't harm us to use the monolith's power against ourselves. They'll be back, and with another sinister plan. And that one will fail, too, as long as they fight against justice and the super friend. Okay, so this, the synopsis doesn't really talk about what the monolith of evil really is. I mean, it's an energy source, I'll say that. But it's not evil, it's just energy. Energy is neutral. How it's used is what makes it good or evil. You know, over in Star Wars fandom, when you know when we're not killing each other over opinions of The Last Jedi. And this was a conversation I had on, I believe it was a year or so ago, where a bunch of us kind of got together and talked about the nature of the Force in Star Wars and 
My kind of belief is that they're, and not to go Star Wars on this podcast, on a Superman podcast, but to me, the Force is a tool. There is no light side or dark side. The light or the dark comes from the person, and that's kind of how the monolith ends up. That's the right way to go, in my opinion. So let's get into this episode, and uh, we're back to the swamp this time, and uh, we didn't get a complaint in either of these episodes, so I don't have to add anyone to my list. Toy Man doesn't necessarily doesn't believe in Grundy's uh, explanation about the uh, power source of all evil, and he shows them the power source that comes up through the ground, and he says that's what brought him back to life. The power source may have brought Grundy back to life, but the power source is not sentient. The evil comes from Grundy. The monolith is in the center of the Earth, because of course it is, and that will give the Legion all the power they ever dreamed of. And I love how Grodd points out taking over the universe before destroying the Super Friends. You would think the second would have to be done before the first. So they go to the center of the Earth. No dinosaurs this time. It actually looks like a pit of molten lava, which is what you would expect the Earth's molten core to look like. But there is life down here. No mole men, but there is a fire-breathing dragon, because in the hottest part of the planet, why wouldn't there be a fire-breathing dragon? And uh, they find the monolith, and it's sitting on an island in the middle of this lava lake, where there is a rock bridge separating it from the Legion, but there is a lava monster protecting the monolith. And, you know, like all mythic uh, energy sources that are sought, there is a great trial that has to be overcome. In this case, the lava monster protecting the secrets of the monolith. So the Legion is going to have to get past the dragon in order to get their monolith of evil. <laughs> you actually thought the Legion was going to do this, didn't you? No. Of course not. They're the villain. They don't do things on their own. It's not for themselves. The Riddler's plan to get the monolith is to have their super friends do it. You know, with the help of some of his awesome riddles. So they get a trouble up from the UN. Apparently the uh, Secretary uh, General is calling from the chambers and not from his office. Someone's going to hold the world for ransom or something when it shakes and the line goes dead. Prompting Superman, Hawkman, and Black Vulcan into action. Here's the Luthor Brainiac team. It's Brainiac that takes out his little shrink gun and shrinks the UN building. And the synopsis mentions that the UN building was not actually shrunk and that it was a hologram. The imagery of the show gives you no indication that this is not the UN building. I fell for it. So, And they have little rockets on their feet that allow them to fly. Little, little black uh, L-shaped things and... Uh, good thing they don't, they don't burn their feet when they're flying. So the Riddler calls in the riddle, and it sends them to a swamp, and I would guess eventually to the center of the Earth. Now, I like the image of Superman kind of flailing out his fists as he tunnels his way down to the center of the Earth with a Black Vulcan and Green Lantern behind him. And obviously the observant viewer will notice when they get to the center of the Earth that this is exactly where the Legion of Doom landed. And again, we see that dragon again as it grabs Hawkman. And as soon as you see the now, as soon as you see the UN hanging out on that island before the monolith was, something should seem fishy because, remember, the Legion of Doom couldn't get to the monolith. But how could they have gotten the UN building there? You know, it seems like a plot hole until you find out that the UN building was not actually the UN building, it was just a hologram. So Superman gets past the lava monster and grabs what we think is the UN building, but nope, it's the UN building is a hologram and that helps the villains get the monolith. So once he knows what he did, Superman tried to destroy the monolith, but he failed to do that, and was eventually immobilized by a kryptonite ball and chain. Kind of while Hawkman and Black Falcon stand and watch. They did absolutely nothing to help Superman in this situation. You would have think they would have tried to do something, other than just kind of be off screen. So, at the end of the scene, some black tendrils come out and grab the heroes. And I'm guessing now that, that they control the power of evil, the villains will eventually fight over it, but, you know, they don't. You know, one of those old cartoon tropes is whenever the villains uh, get a power source and start fighting over it. You saw that countless times on Thundercats in the rare instance where uh, 
the villains got their hands on the uh, Sword of Omens. They don't end up fighting over it, and that's kind of what uh, always got it back to Lionel, aside from when he would just call it. Happened again in the Mumra Lives movie when all the villains fought over a powerful talisman. You know, eventually the villains kind of beat themselves, but they don't do that here, which I like. While they're not fighting over the monolith, they do attempt to knock down the World Trade Center's Twin Towers. They fail, but one of them does lean to the left. Hard to see that in the wake of 9-11, especially from being from New York City, but how could they know that all those years before? Now here's the problem with this phone call. <laughs> if you, if the eagle-eyed viewer will notice that Superman is there, when he should be dying at the center of the Earth. And I never get tired of how calm everyone is when they report things into the super friends. Just once, I would love to hear somebody panic, as most people probably would do in these situations. Batman wonders where Superman, Hawkman, and Black Vulcan are, and no, Batman Superman is not right next to you, as the original establishing shot showed. So Green Lantern, Apache Chief, and the Flash go underground, and apparently Apache Chief is an expert tracker and he knows the way, which which is something you would expect of a Native American character. Native Americans are very famous for having, you know, hunted their food, so it would make sense that they would be expert trackers. So this creature that, you know, that grabbed uh, the Superman, uh, Hawkman, and Black Vulcan is some kind of underground crab, you know. Black Vulcan and Hawkman are busy trying to get out, Superman is too busy dying. To, to be of any kind of help. Now, meanwhile, Batman, Robin, and uh, Wonder Woman spot Darth Vader, I mean the Legion of Doom headquarters, rising out of the water, and they find themselves fighting a water monster, which Batman freezes before it grabs a bridge. But that is before the monolith breaks up the water creature and turns it into an ice creature. Meanwhile, underground, uh, Superman and company turn into rocks as uh, the Flash shows up and reverses the process by speeding up his molecules and, by extension, theirs. The Green Lantern uses his ring to cut through the kryptonite ball and chain, uh, even at the risk of Superman's life, you know, Superman mentioned that they needed some kind of nuclear position cutting tool, and fortunately Green Lantern can just will that together with his power ring. So, Of course, the plan succeeds, and the Super Friends head back to the surface. Batman defeats the Ice Monster, and they go home. Now, the Justice League computer says the power source is not evil, but only reflects the desires of those in possession. You know, like I had mentioned before. So that gives the Wonder Woman the idea of controlling it, you know, the same way she controls her lasso. I would love to see Wonder Woman try to lasso the monolith, but she doesn't. So, the villains attack the Statue of Liberty, then the Empire State Building, as Wonder Woman saves the building by convincing the monolith not to do evil. So, in response, the monolith creates a giant robot, and it rounds up the Legion. And that's when the Super Friends reveal that the monolith was just a tool, and not evil on its own, like I'd mentioned several times before. But the Legion gets the last laugh using the monolith to escape. So, that wasn't a bad episode either. The, mo- the monolith was basically a uh, MacGuffin that didn't have the power that was prescribed to it, but it was a fun episode. Nonetheless, which is really all I want from a cartoon, you know. Decent action, the heroes won, but, you know, again, the ending, you know. You spend so much time getting to the ending, but it, it always seems like these episodes are wrapped up too quickly. You know, Wonder Woman just kind of telling the monolith not to do evil is not really a satisfying conclusion. But that's kind of the way these things are going. Lots of build up and a rush to the finish because they run out of time. So next time, I'm going to cover the new Super Friends episodes, The Beast Are Coming, and Terror from the Phantom Zone. Terror from the Phantom Zone, which leans heavily towards Superman, is an episode I'm really looking forward to. And Challenge of the Super Friends, The Giants of Doom, and Secret Origins of the Super Friends, which is going to be interesting. It's always interesting to see different takes on the origins of our favorite heroes. I know people are getting tired of origin stories, but I don't mind seeing them over and over again because everybody who tells the origin story of a particular hero adds their own flair to it. Which, you know, you can like or not like, depending on your taste. But I always find it interesting how other writers will tweak the stories that we know so well. So that's for next week. 
in the meantime, I encourage you to write in and let, tell me what you think. Man of screen at gmail.com. You know, I'm looking for more Dave McElvenny's. I want it, like I mentioned in the opening, I want to hear your memories of watching these shows as a kid. So don't be shy. Write in man of screen at gmail.com. You can join the conversation over at the Facebook group. Just put Man of Screen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Man of Screencast. And if you don't mind, why don't you leave me a review over on Apple Podcast? That makes the show more visible to people who are searching for a Superman show. So, until next time, folks. Have a good one. Take care. Bye. The Man of Screen Podcast is produced by Mike Zumo, and all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zumo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Screen is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you do, the Two True Freaks get a little cut of what you buy, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you can shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.